Welcome back to Clinicians Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, registered veterinary clinician, Becky Mosser, and we are very excited to welcome back Dr. Deb Linder. Dr. Deb Linder, if you guys remember, was our very first ever guest on Clinicians Brief, the podcast, and so they couldn't have been too bad because we managed to get her back. Welcome back, Dr. Linder. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm always excited to chat nutrition. This is a hot topic lately, so I love getting more information out there about it. That's right. And this hot topic that you're talking about is actually advising pet owners on nutritional adequacy. And that was a article that came out in June 2020 edition of Clinician's Brief. And before we jump into the article itself, just like remind everybody kind of, you know, you're out there at Tufts, kind of give us a little bit idea about your background just real quick. Sure. So I'm a board certified veterinary nutritionist. I'm on faculty at the Tufts Veterinary School. I do some clinics. I do teaching. I also love research. The more I got into obesity, which is one of my all-time loves, I learned a lot about human-animal interaction. And so my research has veered off a little bit into that realm as well, looking at the interaction that people have with their pets and then how that impacts themselves as well as their pets and everybody's health and well-being. So uh, I'm excited that I get to do a lot of different things and one of those being client education too. And I think the client education aspect of nutritional adequacy, one of the hardest parts, I I feel like... I don't know. I guess when I read the title to this article, it made me smile, right? I got excited because in my opinion, we need more of how to talk to owners. So in, we get a lot of the authors on this podcast because it doesn't matter what we know. It doesn't matter what is in our heads. It doesn't matter how smart or educated we are. So if we can't convey this effectively to our clients, we're not going to have good patient outcomes. The act of building a relationship and communicating with the client is directly related to compliance and patient outcomes. So I get excited when we get to talk about actually talking to clients and how to do that. And I know the science is important, but again, it doesn't matter what we know if we don't know how to talk to them about that. So I love that you bring forth not just the science on how to help them choose, but also how we talk to them about these recommendations. And when we think about recommendations, the first question I wanted to ask you, General, was where do most pet owners know we know? Where are they turning to get advice about food? The answer is a lot of different places. The good news is in some of the studies I've come across, a lot of times they're still looking to their veterinarian for that advice. If they don't feel the communication is there and that they're getting the answers that they need, they may turn to other places too, or they may turn to places like internet, friends, um, online forums, books, websites first. And then usually what happens in my experience is they take that to their veterinarian to say, what do you think about this? Like you mentioned, it's so critical that even if we don't know the answers, and it's okay that we don't, we're able to have a good conversation about where we go to get the answers and that information. Yeah. And I mean, I've even heard the nutritional assessment referred to as the fifth vital assessment. You know, Ms. Kara Burns talks regularly about that, that in our physical exams, our yearly exams, and when we're doing all of our assessments, the nutritional assessment is absolutely vital to knowing the overall health of the pet, right? Oh, definitely. And it's crazy too how much if something's actually going wrong with that pet, so many times the answers can be a part of the diet history. I had a dog that was very prone to calcium oxalate stones and we couldn't figure out. We thought we were doing everything and we were working on nutritional management. When we did a really good diet history, we found out they've been getting a bunch of rawhides all the time and those are broken down into oxalate. You know, so a lot of times getting that really good diet history and talking about that with every patient can 
sometimes really help our management and help them do better. Yeah. And like, it's totally about being a detective when it comes to nutrition, because you don't have the same diagnostic parameters, right? I mean, obviously, there are measurements of nutrition, but you can't just like take some blood, put it into a machine and it says this pet is eating great. (laughs) Like You really have to do the research to get there. Definitely. And people ask me all the time of, well, if he's on this food, can't you just do blood work to let me know if it's good for him or if he's okay or if he's deficient in anything? The downside is there, you know, there's over 30 different essential nutrients and to measure every single one of those can be very challenging. And, you know, the clinical manifestations can be harder to see in some than others. So my goal is always just to err on the side of being safe and getting as much information as we can. So we feel comfortable and don't necessarily have to go looking for a deficiency. Well, and I think especially when it comes to nutrition for pets and people, I guess, too, You know, it goes back to treating the pet in front of you. And I think as a researcher, you might agree that I don't think every single entity needs the exact same, right, processes things exactly the same. So it really comes down to what is this individual pet sensitive to? How do they process them? How are they processing them? And then don't even get me started on the ability to process them because of just regular gut health, right? Oh, gosh, yeah. Probably the most common question I get asked is, well, what's the best food? And I go, well, you know, anyone that tells you there is one right answer, I'd like to see their studies. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And like I tell that regularly to cat clients who say like, well, I know this food isn't the best. And I'm like, hey, if it's what they're eating, it's way better than nothing. So it is the best because it's what they are going to go for. So I want to back up to what you just said, though, because when the client says, what is the best food? The thing you have to do is educate them on evaluating the foods, right? Like, because there is no best. So to me, this becomes the difference between giving a man a fish and teaching them to fish, right? So how do you go about that conversation? Give us that summary. Correct. And I think this is one of the most challenging things out there too, because owners just want that yes and no list. They just want to be told, here are the good foods, here are the bad foods. Just tell me what's okay and what's not okay and just kind of make it easy on me. And I go... Oh, I wish. <laughs> I so I so wish it was that easy if there was just a stamp on it and we go, yes, that stamp means something. Here's what it means. You're good. There's a big wide spectrum out there. There are a lot of different pieces of the puzzle that help us understand how that food came to be and all the different testing that's been done on it and the expertise of the company that created it. And so what I like to do is let owners know all those different puzzle pieces and where they can find them. Uh, And then it's really up to each individual owner to make the decision they feel most comfortable with. My job is to make sure that they're going to make the most informed decision that they can and that we all feel comfortable and they know what to look for. I really like what you just said, and I want to highlight it, how that food came to be. Like, I think that is probably the title here, right? Because you think about things that are white labeled, right? And you're saying like, well, I absolutely know this individual does not have a processing plant. Maybe their name is on the food, but it doesn't mean they're actually making the food. So you really do have to do that backtrack in that history. So I love the idea of like making it really simple and just saying, how did this food come to be? Like, I'm going to put that one on a sticky on my wall (laughs) and always take it back to that. 
that. Kind of in that sense, let's take it back to the GP then. Because when we say, how did that food come to be? And educating that client, one thing I hear time and time again is, I just like don't have time. And additionally, I find that veterinary professionals often are confused about the right food choices. And for me, I remember being a part of this industry in a time where some of the most trusted food brands had a serious issue. And we became afraid of recommendations, specific recommendations, I think, because of that. So how do you address concerns from one, I don't have time and two, I really don't know how to make these recommendations? Yeah, and I get it. One of the things I've focused on more now, especially in teaching our veterinary students as they're about to go into practice is how to be efficient and how to use the resources that are out there. There's no way that every practitioner can recreate the wheel in that 10-minute appointment, especially with everything else that you have to address for a pet's all over well-being. My goal is that Everybody in the practice, from the doctors there, the staff, the front desk staff, who usually get asked on the way out, oh, what do you think about what the doctor said? Um, that everyone's on the same page and they know the resources and where to go to. So kind of back to that, giving a man a fish versus teaching the fish. There are a few different options out there and approaches to take. One that I personally like, especially because it's just in an easily digestible forgive the pun, format is the Wasaba Guidelines. Um, so it's the World's Small Animal Veterinary Association. They have a great nutrition toolkit. It's on their website. It's non-branded. And there's one handout there that goes through a whole bunch of different questions to ask a pet food manufacturer. Everything from, you know, who's formulating your food? What are their credentials? Like you mentioned too, the processing plants. Do you own your plants? Do you have peer-reviewed studies on the foods that you're producing? Just one sheet of all these different types of questions. You know, and even if you have to say, well, gosh, I haven't heard of that brand before, but here's the site, here's the paper, here are the questions that I want you to ask, and that'll help you figure out whether you feel comfortable feeding that food. So you don't have to have that conversation in the room with the owners, but you're giving them the blueprint to have that conversation when they leave. And I think we miss that opportunity in the veterinary industry a lot of times, right? Like, so people come to me when like, I'll be consulting, they'll say things about like, I don't know what to put on social media. I don't know what to put in a newsletter. And I'm like, that, put that. You know, what is it the things that you're, are time and time again questions that you're getting in the exam room or that you're feeling you need to educate on? And this is a perfect example where we can get in front of the visits even. Don't make your clients ask. Educate them on a regular basis. Be the point of contact for great education for your clients. Yeah. And, you know, anecdotally, I've heard from owners too, they don't necessarily need their vet to know everything. It's kind of impossible to know that, but they want them to have a response saying, not sure, but here's where we go to figure that out. And here's where I want you to go to figure that out. And here are the trusted and vetted <laughs> websites and sources of information. Because otherwise, folks are going to just search for whatever pops up first. Okay, so that I think actually highlights another really important thing. I believe that our up and coming generation, what people love to say, oh, our Dr. Googles, our Dr. Googles, I mean, I'm like, no, 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 no. Educated. We have educated clients coming in more and more. And I think that what you just said is exactly what they want. I don't know that our upcoming generation, maybe some of them, but I think a lot of them don't want you to tell them specifically what to do. I think they want to make the decision but they want to know how to make an informed decision. So are we shifting from making a specific recommendation to just that, to teaching them how to make their own? It's hard. I find every owner um, needs something a little bit different. And I'll often just ask them, how can I best 
help you? And how much of an agent do you want to be in this? So like you mentioned, so many owners want to take control of that aspect. You know, they can't go out and decide like which antibiotics they're going to use or sometimes, but not always, like which flea and tick medication or preventatives they're going to do. But diet is something they control. It is something they're going to go out and purchase and they take ownership of that. And I think sometimes too, especially in communication, that's where they can be either feeling guilty or defensive if you say that what they've chosen so far might have hurt their pet or might not be the best for their pet. So I think the more we engage with them and let them feel empowered to make those decisions in an informed way, I think it's a win-win for everyone. Okay, so that kind of is exactly what we want to talk about in the sense of it being a crucial aspect of the client relationship, right? Like, I love that when you say, what is it you need from me? What are you looking for me to provide you here? Is it specific recommendation? Is it guidance? Is it follow-up? Asking our clients what their expectations are. And that's like my mind's like kind of like blowing because I'm like, I bet we never do that. And it ties into that whole working with our clients. And that's so important to a successful client relationship. Yeah. I've had owners all across the board, some that just walk in and say, nope, you're the doctor. Tell me what to do. Tell me what's best. And I'm just going to feed it. And then I have other folks that say, well, I want to make the decision or I've already made this decision. I feel really confident about it. But can you just double check it for me? (laughs) So, you know, and anywhere along that spectrum and in between and different personalities and different needs can be within the same household, too. So evaluating that, having as much of a conversation that's open ended as possible, I think is really key and it sounds like you may be spending you know, too much time just talking about diet, but you're really forming a bond with that client that's going to spill over into all aspects of care for their pet. Right. Good point. Because when they tell you what they're expecting in their food, they're probably also telling you what they expect in every aspect of their veterinary care, right? Yeah. And just how they want their relationship with you to go. Enhance your clinical skills with practical race-approved courses from Clinician's Brief. Topics include clinical cardiology and general practice, canine aggression, refreshers on common diagnostic tests, and much more. Start your course at cliniciansbrief.com backslash CE. So I'm backing up a little bit to what you said. Where did this food originate from? And honestly, when you reference this in the article, you call it adequacy evidence, which is beautiful. And I'm stealing that statement. Can you define adequacy evidence for us? Yeah. And so how I look at it is, you know, again, we we touched on this maybe a little bit in terms of, to me, I don't like there being like a yes list and a no list or a good or a bad, but there's a lot of different puzzle pieces. And each of those pieces to me is a piece of evidence. And, you know, to some folks, evidence may be, well, my sister's dog did well on this food for her whole life. And so I can relate to that and I see it. And so that's all the evidence I need. And for other adequacy evidence would be that we've done clinical trials. So a group of animals have been fed this diet, they've been monitored, and these are exactly the outcomes that we expect because this is what's been seen in a large group of animals. And there were no other differences between the two groups that ate that food or ate another food. Again, I think it goes back to the conversation and I'll tell owners, everybody 
puts their comfort level somewhere different, I'm going to let you know where I put my comfort level. Here's the level and the kinds of evidence that I would look for. So you can look for that and you may have other aspects of evidence that you want to. I think that's important for us to really take that to heart and to know there's a broad spectrum and again, where those expectations are. But for us as veterinary professionals, how can we feel, I guess, it's great to have these guidelines. I mean, should we be reaching out to these food brands? And with the fact that they're popping up literally every day, other than saying, here are the questions you should reach out to the company and ask, how can we feel more informed on like what's happening and what's coming and what's new? Because it seems like there's always something new. And I know I kind of hate for my client to be like, hey, have you heard of this food? And I'm like, no, I want to know what's out there before my clients come to me with it. How can we get ahead of it? Yeah, that is increasingly challenging because like you said, there are more and more food brands popping up constantly. And even more so than that, even if you did want to develop a good yes list and no list, and I have all the questions answered from one company or another, they change. And with each new food that comes out, with each new formulation, something that worked great previously may not be working well now or vice versa. So the one thing you know that's not going to change is those questions. And do you have expertise that's going into the food? Is your production safe? And have you tested these foods? And so when I ask you these questions, you have the answers and you're able to give them to me. Any foods that you're going to carry in your clinic, you should have a really good relationship with those representatives from the companies and make sure that you have the product guides for them. I see product guides like medication drug inserts. You need to know everything about them. You need to know the evidence that's behind them, how they should be given, what the indications and contraindications are, especially if we think about pets with medical conditions and we're thinking into specially made or specially formulated foods or therapeutic foods, I really want to see clinical trials. I want to know exactly what the outcome is and who it's been tested on. You know, is this preventing a disease? Is it helping to manage a disease? Is it going to cure a disease? And that then you can then align those expectations with what the owner is hoping to have too. I have so many conversations with clients thinking that if they go on a therapeutic food, that it's like having a medicated feed. And as long as they eat that food, the medical condition goes away, which is not necessarily the outcome that the company even intended to have. So really understanding all those aspects of it can be really helpful, especially for client expectations too. Okay. So what about when you have a client who when you say those client expectations is, I love this. I will feed this diet. I do love this diet. This is everything. And you're like, not so much. Like, how do you have the conversations with clients who have super strong beliefs and passions and things that you might not feel positive about that choice? (laughs) We definitely have a lot of conversations about that too, where, you know, a pet, it seems to be doing just fine. And that's actually a strong communication point that I've started doing much more, especially with foods that are more controversial or that have documented risks to them, is letting owners know just because they're so used to and they're ready for you to come and say, no, that's bad. No, don't do that. Or I'm on the no camp for this. Or a lot of times I'll say with owners, hey, here's the information we have right now. If a study came out tomorrow that showed there are risks, but there's also benefits, I will reconsider my position and I will start recommending that with some caveats to how to minimize risk. Letting them know that you're not static and that you're not in one camp or another, but your recommendations change with the information that's out there. That has drastically changed the way I talk with owners and the conversations, the relationships we have. And for the owner that says, but he's doing great, you say there's a risk. 
I tell them, well, not all pets are going to have a problem, but I don't have a crystal ball to say which pets are going to have a problem or when they're going to have a problem. You can have a dog that does great for 10 years on this food and year 10, day one, they have an awful side effect from it. So my job is just to let you know what those risks are and you can move forward with the decision that you want to make with how risk averse you may be. I'm like, everybody stop, pull over your car, rewind and listen to that until you have it memorized. It feels so important to say like, I am willing to change my mind because that tells them you are coming from a place of flexibility and not a judgment place, a science place. And I love that. I think that's the perfect message we really need to create. Side note, do pets get sick of food? Like when we have a food we really like and then our pet stops eating it. (laughs) Yeah, I have found that pets can either be neophilic or neophobic, that they have the one thing they love and they're never going to go away from it. And they're only going to like foods that are very much like it, or the pets that just seem to always want the new thing and that they will continue to want that new thing. And you'll have to cycle through a few different foods. Either is okay. I think it just depends what their, I was just going to say what their childhood was, what their, uh, how many different foods they might've been exposed to as they were growing up and just what their personal preferences are. They're all a little different. I don't think either is good or bad, better or worse. Just helpful to know your pet. Uh, know the preferences, and then work with that in the recommendations. Clearly, I was asking that for a friend. (laughs) But no, like we always worry about like fast food changes, right, on the stomach. But then we have pets who just stop eating whatever they're eating. And it's not for any kind of medical reason because when you, of course, like throw a little yogurt on it or do whatever, they're like, that's perfect. Thank you. You know, I just kind of always worry about quick changes with those pets who are a little bit more finicky. And it's a common question I get from clients. Yeah, for those guys to avoid the training that behavior into them, they learn very quickly the minute they turn their nose at something, then something new is going to appear like yogurt is now going to come or chicken's going to come. And then very quickly that devolves into, oh gosh, we're feeding and pretty much an unbalanced home cooked diet (laughs) because our pet just became less and less interested in commercial food. But it might have been that we rewarded them with something new and something fun every time they showed even minimal disinterest in their food. So the way I try to combat that is if your pet is that kind of pet and you just know that's their preference, let's get them before they start changing their mind. While they're still in love with the food, if they tend to be, you know, every two weeks they want something new, well, every 10 days, let's start that gradual transition to something else. Let's have three foods that are somewhat similar, they all do well on, and just rotate between them and do it before they tell you to, (laughs) Uh, to keep things a little interesting. I also love the idea of a 10% treat allowance. So 10% of the calories per day can be whatever you'd like, as long as it's, you know, nothing toxic. And those can be rotated as well. Again, adding it in when you put the food down, not adding it in after they show any signs of non-interest, I guess you could say. That's good advice. I'll let my friend know. (laughs) I'm definitely not a slave to my 13-year-old dog who won't eat anything twice. (laughs) We'll take that offline. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Okay, so we have brought ourselves to our Keep It Brief segment, although you know we never do. So 
answer it how you will. This is an area I think the whole team message and clinic message is really important when we talk about nutrition. And you've kind of already mentioned that, right? Like the clients on the way out, like, well, what do you think about this? And like, is my pet actually going to eat this? And they're the ones that are dealing with the price tag associated with that therapeutic diet recommendation or, you know, whatever it is we're saying. So I think there's always someone in the clinic who's really passionate about, or maybe a few people who are passionate about food and nutrition, but how do you create the clinic message around food and nutrition? So everyone from from the reception to your assistants and your technicians and your kennel staff know that conversation. Yeah. And that's where I go back to a couple things. One is, you know, that not creating the wheel that we are not a brand A clinic or a brand B clinic, but we are a clinic that focuses on evidence and questions and that things always change. And so everybody in the hospital should feel really comfortable with what those resources are. I think another thing that can be great is creating your own website, you know, on the hospital website or in social media, like you mentioned, we have that at Tufts, even though we have three nutritionists when we started it, that all had very different views on a few different things. We all got together and said, what do we agree on? And we created a client education website. And so that can happen at each clinic or you can redirect to others. And I think that's helpful when you engage everyone. For someone that's really excited about nutrition, that's awesome. Invite them to be a part of that team and creating those handouts, those guidelines for the clinic where folks can get resources. The more engaged in a part of it they are, I think the more they may be interested in learning more and helping to keep that message going to the clients too. Now, this is kind of an off-kilter question that I'm throwing at you here, but I guess when I was thinking through this podcast and the questions I was going to ask you and how controversial, frankly, nutrition can be, it made me think about how deep should we dive into these areas of ethics and beliefs when we're actually choosing our team members? Like, how important is it to know before a team member comes on how they feel? Or is it more just a matter of how willing they are to communicate our message? And where does this come into actually forming our teams? Yeah. Well, I think in any area, not just nutrition, you know, like what I mentioned before, that idea of my recommendations change with more information that comes in. And so folks that I would want to work on my team would be ones that share that philosophy. So it's not just, you know, well, you don't like this food, so you shouldn't be here. But it's more the idea of, are you welcoming of new information? Are you flexible in the things that you recommend or the way that you see things? And can we continue to have discussions? I think that's so important, just gosh, in America right now, or can we continue? to have discussions and continue to learn and get more information from others and being flexible versus being very stuck that my way is the only way and nothing else. I think we have a whole lot more learning to do and team members that also believe that I think are going to be much more valued throughout all the aspects of veterinary medicine, not just nutrition. I think I'm going to add the question, what were the last five hashtags you used to my interview? (laughs) I think we can tell a lot about a person. And it's funny, I only say this because I am not some magical expert. I just did everything wrong when I first started. And I was so excited and I learned all this new knowledge and I wanted to tell everybody about it. And when they came back and said, no, I don't believe that, I go, well, let me spend another hour educating you until you do believe it. And now learning much more communication skills and having that flexibility has 
just revolutionized the way that I'm able to connect with owners. So learn from my mistakes and hopefully that that's helpful for folks out there. That's the perfect message, Dr. Linder, right? Like be afraid to mess up, but also be afraid to learn. And learning to communicate is the only way you're going to get the knowledge that is inside of your head out. So if you don't have the ability to communicate in a way that your clients can hear, understand, and relate to, your patient outcomes are going to be affected. And you heard it here today from Dr. Linder. Dr. Linder, thanks so much for coming back and hanging out with us. No problem. Always happy to come and to chat and to share my mistakes so others have them. <laughs> well, we love hearing them and we We'll be sure to have you back for more. And thank you again so much. Great, thanks. Thanks again to today's guest for joining us. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief on Twitter at Clinicians Brief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief, the podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant Michelle Moncrez.